This episode of Converge with my guest, Tucker Nichols, is sponsored by Go, the Converge Summit. Go is our annual gathering for creatives looking to maximize their markets. How much are you leaving on the table? For more information, check out ConvergeSummit.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things. And when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work, and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. It seems like there's a built-in tension between making things and making money from things. If you're an artist, there's a concern that you're selling out if you are making money. And if you're going after making money as an entrepreneur, it seems like you can't be artistic in that game. And of course, neither of those things are true. We talk about this all the time. But when we can come across somebody who is living that out concretely, at least my interest gets piqued pretty quickly. And today is one of those extraordinary exceptions. Tucker Nichols is a Bay Area artist who works everywhere from McSweeney's to the Facebook campus. And he is actively engaged in the idea of making really fun stuff, great illustrations and art uh, without selling your soul to do it. And the way that his art has shown up in places from uh, physical goods that you and I can go get in mass production all the way to mass installations, not only will inspire you, but hopefully spark an interest in what you can do. For me, what's working is doing new things all the time and trying to figure out what happens if we take the way I think about art and push it into these places where it hasn't really been before. I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. Tucker Nichols, welcome to Converge. Oh, thanks for having me. I am so excited. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. We were introduced by someone who had listened to my interview with Lisa Congdon after she put out her book, Art Inc. And the more I got into your story, your background, the more I was intrigued because it seems like, especially given our show, this Business of Creativity podcast, it seems like you live at the crux of that of those two places. You are in many ways a fine artist and illustrator. In fact, I'm curious, how, how would you describe yourself rather than me put labels on you? And, uh, and how did you get to where you're at? Well, I do call myself an artist, although at, at first that felt uh, a little uncomfortable. I know a lot of people struggle with that with when they first start saying it. Now I, now I hardly notice anymore, but it seems to be the best term, the most accurate description for, for what I do and, and how I work. And I, I came to it through a pretty circuitous route. I, my background is actually as an academic in the history of Chinese painting. And um, I won't go into the whole long story of it, but over time I became more and more aware that what I was really wanting to do was talk about art through making it instead of uh, reading about it and writing about it. So it, was, it took a number of steps and, and a couple false turns before I finally came to terms with the fact that I'm supposed to be making this stuff, not just looking at it and writing about it. What, what were some of the false turns? Well, the biggest one was really going back to grad school. I, I really, um, I came to, as an undergrad, I really discovered the world of, of the history of Chinese painting. And it just, I don't know exactly why, but it just fell perfectly in line with, with what I was hungry for. And 
I studied it. I sort of created my own major and studied it from all angles, language, religious studies, other types of art. And then just a whole a whole lot of the paintings themselves. And, and then after I did that, I went and moved to Taiwan and I lived there for a year and traveled around China and other parts of Asia and got my language really up to speed. And I lived with a painter while I was there. And he didn't speak English very well and my Chinese wasn't great at the time. And so we really sort of communicated through painting together. And it was this very sort of romantic sort of film-like experience of sort of art transcending language. And mm. there was just, it was just a really, a very influential period of my life. I, it just had a, had a big impact on me. And then I came back to New York and I lived there for a few years. I was working in a museum doing all the installation and sort of curatorial assistant work at a place called Asia Society, which is the leading Chinese, uh, leading Asian art museum in, in New York. And it just occurred to me like, oh, I really need the next level in order for me to really be creative here. Uh, I need to have the degree and then I can become a curator or a museum director or something like that. And when I went back to school, you know, everything just sort of lost its vibrancy and it became much more about, it became very insular and it felt like it was kind of away from the real world. And um, I was no longer touching things and I was no longer talking to artists and I was no longer making art myself. It was no longer a match for where my mind was. I was still interested in the ideas, but I was developing the wrong tools for the job. I moved out to the West Coast and, and have been out in San Francisco ever since and uh, have really just been using my own work and the, and the way that the challenges of making things as a way of thinking about things and, and reflecting on things as, as opposed to the study of the more traditional way. Well, it's, it's interesting to me that your undergrad was at Brown, which uh, from what I understand, you know, Brown reminds me of other some of the other Ivies that have this kind of, at least at the undergraduate level, a real bias towards like a true liberal art approach. Is that is that a fair? Yeah, I mean, Brown was a, just an amazing place to be a student. I was I, I I look back so fondly on my time there, and part of it was that they really trust you with the kind of freedom to pursue whatever is of interest in you and to you, and and obviously in my case. I took that. It, I, I took them to heart and, and yeah. ended up studying this thing that I didn't even know was really something I could study. They, there, there's a lot of trust and a lot of responsibility that's handed to the students, and mm -hmm. um, that's the kind of environment I, I tend to thrive in. Well, that's what it strikes me is it seems like that kind of whatever they infected you with for you to take that and have it inform your own kind of self-led learning and your travels and, and then ultimately landing back. It was Yale, I believe you said you, you did your grad work. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, and uh, not not to disparage Yale at all, but I'm just I'm struck by the way that you're characterizing the tools that you got from the the Yale experience as not resourceful, but but maybe it, it was just too cerebral, or what was the? I think it was that in between those things, I had had so much real world experience with real artists and real the real streets of Taiwan and and Western China and Pakistan, and it was just so alive, those things had really changed me. I think so. I think part of it was I just had changed since that time of being in academia. And then honestly, part of it was just grad school at Yale with the main professor I was studying with was much more of a program about connoisseurship and um, really trying to untangle what is a just wonderfully tangled history of Chinese painting. I mean, it couldn't be more 
referential and confusing and there's tons of forgeries and it's a huge mess. The history of Chinese painting is a giant ball of tangled twine and I didn't really want to untangle it. It was an amazing skill to have, but it just didn't feel relevant in the way that everything else I'd been doing felt like it was just fueling me in this very deep and intense way. Well, over the last few weeks as I've been immersing myself in your work and and looking at just the output, whether it be again, these larger installations or some of your projects online, or I'm really a, a huge fan of the work you've done for Plum Goods, these notebooks that are, I'm talking to everyone I know about them. I mean, they're just such a, an interesting combination of uh, material and expression and organization. It kind of reminds me a little bit of a a, a big ball of twine. <laughs> um, so, and it makes me wonder, gosh, could that grad work have... Uh, even if it was in reaction to it, informed the kind of work that you're doing today? I think it definitely has. I think it's so useful to, to come up against things that aren't right. You know, that's the that's the most striking example of them of it for me. But I think I think I've always, you know, even the undergrad is sort of a good example of me defying, you know, more classical boundaries or categories of of really anything to be involved with. And, and as I started to develop a career in the, in the art world and things were going quite well, I, I, I was, you know, showing at galleries and I'm, I'm still doing that now. And I really, I love that work. There's so much freedom there. You can do anything and you're getting supported just by showing your stuff in the gallery. It's, it's incredible, but it doesn't feel, I don't know. There's something about like a project like Plum where we're, we're bringing artists, from you know who who have uh, real established careers in the art world and really forcing them into some into a more commercial enterprise and just seeing what happens when we ask them to tell us what what they think notebooks should be like it's a very simple task in some ways we all know what a notebook you know what what the parameters are but when you start asking artists what they use notebooks for and you start really pushing them to push us into thinking about it in new ways, we come up with some results that are just none of us could have thought of on our own. And that kind of thinking is, I don't know, I, I can't really put my finger on it, but there's something about um, the mix between those worlds that's yielding something that I think just couldn't exist otherwise. Did you ever consider, instead of doing your MA in... Asian art, did you ever think of like an MFA or something like that? You know, I thought about it and at Yale, I was friends with a lot of people in the MFA program and I, I just found myself, you know, that was, that felt like it had more juice in it, right? That felt like there was more freedom and more excitement and it looked like a lot more fun, frankly, than what I was doing. But, you know, and, and I, and I do some uh, lecturing at MFA programs, you know, now, and I, I love the idea of art school. I think it's really um, it's a real luxury, and I think that it's a great place to develop a vocabulary for making things. But it's not really for me. You know, I really, I'm really appreciative for the way that I learned how to make things. I just make things, and if people like them, then they can go forward. And if they don't like them, then I can just find somebody else to show them to. If you can't show it to somebody else, are you able to just let it go? Like, I, I you know, people, artists talk all the time of this notion of, you know, these are your babies. They, they need a home. But it, you have, it sounds like you're a little bit more neutral about it. 
Oh, I'm more than neutral. I believe strongly <laughs> in killing your babies. I kill them. I kill them every day. And when I used to, my, my studio used to be in our home. And at the time we had a, a wood burning stove was the main way to, to heat our house. And there was something so satisfying about burning huh. drawings and, and anything on paper that just wasn't working for me because it's just this permanent, like that is gone. I never have to contend with that again. It's very satisfying. And I make, I make things very, very quickly. I make a lot of work in a single day. And then my main job is, is really has two parts. It's the making and then the, the editing or the, there's the making and then the figuring out what to do with it. And one of the main things that, that I do with it is destroy it. It, it just has to work that way for me or I'll say I, things get too precious and I, I start to care about them too much in the process of making them. And it just doesn't that that system doesn't work for me. I, I've tried it and it's it's just not for me. So so destroying it is part of the editing process that oh, that definitely you put it in that category. Definitely. So, uh, not to be cynical, but I'm curious uh, when you sell your art, is that like destroying it? Like, is that part of the editing process as well? Or is that a third stage? I guess it's something a little bit different than destroying it, although it is there's there's something very odd about the selling process because it is gone and yet it exists in the world somewhere. And, and I never unless it's to a friend or an institution, I just never see anything that sells. It's just gone. As far as I'm concerned, it just doesn't exist anymore. And and for a lot of people who collect art, it's not even up for them. It's in the flat file or it's in a storage somewhere. So it's it is kind of a weird place for your work to end up. But uh, it's all part of the system, and that system, I, you know, I benefit from it, and it's a lot of fun to make stuff in galleries and, and work with galleries and get to talk to collectors and stuff. So I, I don't, I, I'm not upset about it, but it is a little bit weird just that you can put a lot into something and then decide that it makes it through the editing process, put it on the wall, and it gets sold, and it's just as gone as the things that I, I burned in the wood stove, really. I want to turn a corner here, chat a little bit about a, a phrase that you used when we were talking offline before we started the, the interview. And you described yourself as a boundary defier. And, uh, and I'd like to frame that uh, phrase or category around the diverse output that you have. So I'm just going to go down the, a list. I mentioned this in the, at the top of the, the conversation, but you, you do these large installations. You put your work on physical artifacts like at Plum Goods. You were part of a, a kid's book project, McSweeney McMullen's Crabtree. You illustrate for the New York Times. I mean, it, it seems like you and a lot more than those things. The work gets created, then you edit it, and it lands in so many diverse spaces. And you're generating enough revenue to live uh, <laughs> uh, in the midst of this. Talk a little bit about, I guess, the direction of or the, kind of the strategy behind putting it in so many different directions. And if that relates at all to the idea of creating maybe multiple revenue streams or finding a way to make your art a viable business. Well, it would certainly sound uh, convenient if I said that this was the strategy going forward uh, all along, but it's, (laughs) but it really, this is completely a, um, it's just happened by virtue of just seeing what's working for me and what I enjoy and what I can imagine continuing to do. So, I'm not, so it's pragmatic, I'm, you mean? Like it's just pragmatic? Well, it's more just what I feel like doing and what's working. And I just keep doing those things. And as it turns out, for me, what's working is doing new things all the time and trying to figure out what happens if we take my the way I think about art and push it into these places where it hasn't really been before 
does that work or not? And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but it's not, it's not as interesting to me to keep doing it in those same places unless the context is changing. Like with the times, that's a really thrilling place for me to be making drawings. And I think it'll always be that way for as long as they'll let me draw there because the context is always so dynamic. It's just an endless stream of those great philosophers who have written things that I've drawn to. And it's just an endless group of totally divergent philosophies and ideas and very real world events that I'm putting these, you know, very crudely drawn, quickly drawn um, ideas up against and then sending out across the world through so many different pieces of printed paper. It's, it's really mind boggling when you think about it, just the kind of distribution that that happens. And it's not so much that I love the the sort of egoness of my name being in that many places. I, I, I mean, I definitely have an, have an ego and I love being recognized for the work I'm doing, but I really get a thrill over just that context of just the paper landing on so many different doorsteps and so many different people with so many different mindsets in coming across my drawing in the context of, you know, some piece that's written by the vice president or something like that. It's just, it's, it's too weird to, to really fathom. And yet I can't help but think about it. Well, it sure makes sense to me. And, and you're right. It, regardless of kind of ego in, connected to it, it just sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, it's really, and, and it's really fascinating just to watch those episodes unfold in front of me. And I'm, I get, I'm watching myself try to solve these problems and I'm just trying to um, keep up with whatever's going on. Now, do they share conceptually what they want from you, or do you just get the piece and you read it and what strikes you? No, they don't share any concepts with me. They tend to, over time, I've tended to um, sort of self-select as someone who likes to take on the ones that aren't really illustration projects that are a little bit, that are so abstract or sort of mind-blowing in one way or another that they kind of defy image. And so they tend to more be portraits of somebody trying to make sense of something that's that's very big and very hard to unpack. You mentioned a moment ago this distinction, well, the way I framed it in my mind as I heard it was this distinction between the content that you're creating and the context within which it will ultimately land. And I'm wondering how conscious you are of that, because it sounds like the process, when you separate the work from the editing, it sounds a little bit like that's kind of a pure creative space for the content, but then you're also conscious to like, will it go in a child's book? Will it go on a, on a notebook that, you know, you're going to sell to me to use, or is it going to land in the New York times or somewhere else? How, at what point does the context interplay with the content and how conscious are you of, of that interplay? I love thinking about where it's going to end up, even if I can't really picture it. I just get a real thrill out of that, just like I was saying with the times landing on so many doorsteps. <clears throat> and one of the big draws about the notebook project is just the idea that, you know, notebooks are where we put our, our ideas. They're, they're, when you have a notebook that's really full, that you've really filled up with drawings or a journal or notes from meetings or whatever it is, it's really valuable to you and it's basically valueless to anybody else. Mm. That's a really special place to be able to interact with somebody else. And the idea of making these blank books that are getting used by people who I'll never meet is really, it's, that's again, it's kind of mind blowing to think about. And the idea of someone writing a, 
you know, a really sincere diary entry or a really funny comic in there or, you know, an angry tirade of like someone planning how they're going to quit their job or whatever it is, just the menu for their kid's school. There's so many different things that can happen in those books. For me, it's really a thrill to be able to work with other artists because now that same context is still in play. We still get to think about all the different kinds of people who might be using these books but it's with someone else's mindset in mind. It's a, with a different artist completely, and maybe they're more serious, or maybe they have a really um, beautiful kind of quiet serenity to their work, or maybe they're totally over-the-top insane, or whatever it is. I get the th- same thrill over thinking about the context, but it's I- I'm more of a creative director instead of the actual artist in, in, in those cases. One of the things I really enjoyed as I was going through not only looking at your work, but how many uh, videos that were created around the process of you creating your work, uh, where, you know, I could kind of get a kind of a fly in the wall perspective on the process. And I was reminded actually of a kind of an odd experience I had just a couple of years ago. I'm, I grew up with um, the son of a very famous Canadian nature artist, a guy named Robert Bateman. And his son, we went to school together growing up, and, and he's actually this remarkable furniture maker, and he lives up in the islands up in the um, Pacific Northwest. And I went to visit with him, and we went to see his dad's studio, and he's been very successful, this guy. And I'm literally, like, he has this balcony overlooking uh, his workspace, and he was working on this massive bear that he was painting. It was going to be given to the Russian president or something. I mean, it was ridiculous. This, this, <laughs> this huge deal. And uh, I remember thinking, like, he's on this corded phone talking to somebody while he's painting something, and the cord's, like, 45 feet long, and he's running around doing stuff. And it was just this kind of very gritty, messy space. And as I was watching (laughs) you do your illustrations, I was immediately brought back to Robert Bateman's studio, and I thought, how fun that you invite people into that process, almost in a voyeuristic way, but not creepy, like, in in a very kind of, wow, that's an interesting approach to get messy with your stuff. And I'm, I'm wondering, was there intention to do that for the sake of people? Like, was it a, a teaching tool, an invitation for others to just kind of consider wh- the way that you do it? Did somebody else have that idea? Like, what was your intention in creating those kinds of films? Well, I think with the videos, they tended to just be whoever was making the video just was looking at the work and was like, well, how do you make these? And it's just, it's sort of a natural place to go, but there is something about making things, you know, the studio, the artist, my, my experience anyhow, as an artist is it's a very private and very solitary life. I mean, I think all artists who, unless you have just a team of assistants, you really have to learn how to get along with yourself and you have to learn how to spend a lot of time by yourself. And I do like to spend a lot of time by myself. And I I think I'm lucky that way. But it is still this kind of a black box of of where I work and what I do all day. And so I think there's something about just pulling the curtain back and saying, well, this is how I do it. I don't really know how other people make their stuff, but this is what I do. And so I I think that's part of the way that the film, those films have happened. But there there are some projects that I've done over the years that are these kind of embedded commissions where I go and kind of fake work at various companies and then make a a mural in their lobby or somewhere on their, in, in their offices that they, they end up looking kind of like um, brainstorming sessions gone wrong. 
<laughs> as if as if they're someone at the company had made them. And and those projects are very um, they really are just me right in the middle of it, making things and a lot of people looking at me quizzically and sometimes saying things that are just barely within earshot about what they think about what I'm doing. And it's a very odd um, as an artist, it's a very odd environment to be working in because they're not people who care about art generally. They don't know who I am. They don't know what I'm doing there. And then maybe they just know that I'm getting paid to, you know, scrawl things on the wall while they have to work on, you know, the spreadsheet for some sales report or something like that. So it's the dynamic is really, really odd. And the way that those things tend to work is in the beginning, I'll get introduced hopefully by someone very high up in the company who has some clout. And they'll say, hey, this guy's here. He's an artist. He's going to be wandering around. If he wanders into your meeting, you know, just he's just going to sit there. Don't worry about it. He's making this, doing this project. And in the beginning, everyone is quite skeptical. And people ask me, you know, have you signed an NDA? And, you know, are you sure that we can trust this guy and all that? And then as I start to work on the wall or whatever the project is, um, it's kind of interesting. Some people start to get more involved in it and they start to say, oh, I know who said that or he must have been at that meeting because that's where he got that little diagram and, and, oh wait, but this is a sandwich order. How was that doing there? And some people start to get really involved in it and other people start to be like, see, I told you this was bullshit. This, this guy is just, all he's doing <laughs> is just like eavesdropping and picking things up and, and writing them on the wall. And so it, it really is, it kind of is a reflection of something that as artists, we never get to see, which is how people react to what we're doing. We just never, it's very rare, even at an art opening, you don't really see what's happening. But in those office environments, you know, I don't know any of those people. None of them, none of them is really has a vested interest in making me feel good. And you just have to navigate it. And it's kind of the real world. And, you know, we spend so much time at work now. And for me to be able to explore the work environment and see what office life is really like it's another it's another place that I never would get to really think about if it wasn't for making things. And so that's that's just been a really I never never would have thought that that's where I would end up doing what I do, but it's been really it's it's a great way for me to learn about having a job and sort of reflect on the good things about that and the bad things about that and also I get to learn a lot about whatever the industry is. Okay, last question. I hear a lot of kind of philosophy, culture, traditions, reinvention, even way back to the religious studies when you were uh, in undergrad and grad work. Is there a faith tradition or a worldview or anything that informs your work? And I'm just curious offhand if, if there's anything to that. That's a really great question. And it's something that I'm trying to, I haven't really, the short answer is no. I mean, aside from just that I like thinking about big things and I like seeing if art can help me to stay thinking about big things. I think in the absence of religion, I'm not a religious person, but in the absence of religion, it can be difficult to think about things like, I don't know, the universe and the stars and life and how it works and all that. And art has offered me a tool for staying engage with that stuff and and finding a way to actually express something about the unknowingness of all that. So I can lie on a field on a night and look up at the stars, but I can't really think about the stars for very long. It just hurts my head or I just, I can't stay there. But when I draw about it, 
then I can stay there for much longer. I can, I can actually try to say something about how hard it is to conceive of infinity in space or whatever it is. So I, th I think the short answer is I don't really, there isn't really a worldview there, but there's definitely a quest for just trying to stay. I find it very satisfying to think about big things and sort of have my mind be blown and making art is a way to, to stay engaged with some of those ideas. So in as much as that's a worldview, that's my worldview. Tucker Nichols, what a pleasure to get to know you a little bit. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks. I had a good time. This was episode 035 of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge podcast is our home where you'll find all of our past episodes. ConvergeSummit.com is our annual gathering for creatives looking to maximize their markets. How much are you leaving on the table? Music today provided by TripleScoopMusic.com. Sound as good as you look. Thanks to Anna Quaza at acreative.co for her audio production. And a special thanks to Tucker for being with us. Check out his stuff at TuckerNichols.com. Finally, if you like what's here and you haven't shared it with a friend, would you? Maybe consider one person you think would benefit and invite them along. When you leave questions and comments on the site and rate us on places like iTunes, we recognize that you caring enough to do that sort of thing is a really big deal, and we're grateful. That's it for now. I'm Dave Sanders. I cannot wait until next time.